0: When you're thirsty, what do you do? Like most of us in Canada, you probably go to your house's tap and fill a glass with water without giving it much thought. Lots of people around the world aren't so lucky. Not every country has easy access to freshwater lakes, aquifers, and clean rivers. Millions of people around the world instead rely on rainwater. To them, and maybe to you, rain is a consistent, reliable source of clean drinking water. After all, we can collect it directly from the sky before it has a chance to enter any polluted bodies of water, right? Unfortunately, this is no longer the case. This summer, news broke that we may have also been underestimating the toxicity of rainwater. Reports in early August of 2022 warned of Forever Chemicals, or PFAS, in rainwater that have now made it undrinkable. So today, let's take a step back from the news and talk to a couple people who might be able to help us make sense of this in another discussion on the sidelines. Joining us on the sidelines today to talk about Forever Chemicals are Dr. Alyssa Cordner, an environmental sociologist and Associate Professor of Sociology at Whitman College and co-director of the PFAS Project Lab at Northeastern University.
1: Thank you, Sam. Great to be here.
0: And Ms. Kira Moke, a Sociology and Environmental Studies student and research assistant with the PFAS Project Lab. Alyssa, Kira, thanks for joining us. So let's start uh, with kind of the question that probably everyone's thinking about when they look at the news right now. So what exactly is the issue with drinking rainwater right now? What would be like the health risks uh, if I were to just go outside and drink the rain?
1: Well, there could be a range of health risks, uh, but I think we're here today to talk about PFAS chemicals. Uh, These are per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, commonly known as PFAS, PFAS perhaps also. And there is a recent paper that looked at several studies that had measured PFAS in rainwater, and then compared the levels detected in rainwater with health-based guidelines developed by governments around the world and found that, in many cases, the levels of PFAS in rainwater are actually above those health-based drinking water levels. So the concern is that rainwater is actually so highly contaminated with PFAS that it might pose a long-term risk to your health. And we are talking about a long-term, you know, a lifetime of consuming rainwater at this level. Many folks in Canada or the US are not drinking rainwater as their drinking water source, but there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who do consume rainwater as their primary drinking water source. And then, of course, there are many of us whose public water systems are fed by rainwater in some way. If your public water system sends you water that comes from a surface water source, so a river, a lake, etc., you're drinking rainwater along with perhaps other water sources.
0: So what exactly are those health risks that uh, these chemicals in the water are posing? Like, What's going to happen to me in the long term if I was spending a lifetime drinking this rainwater?
1: So the types of health risks that these studies are looking at are long-term population level increases in many different types of health outcomes. Um, including several types of cancers, including measures of liver function, including immune function issues, uh, including developmental outcomes for the fetus and children. We're not necessarily talking about what's going to happen to any one person at the individual level. Rather, we're talking about what population level exposure to PFAS is going to change in terms of the likelihood of a population developing certain health endpoints. So it's not necessarily that you, Sam, are going to drink PFAS contaminated water and then you as a result will develop a certain health outcome, but rather that your risk of developing a health outcome might be a little bit higher than it would have been otherwise. And so that's a concern when we're talking about billions of people consuming drinking water that might be contaminated with PFAS at levels that are known to increase health risks.
0: So yeah, it's at the population level. Why are they called Forever Chemicals though? Why did we give it this kind of nickname?
2: The name Forever Chemicals has to do with a lot of the different chemical properties of the class and so They're very persistent in the environment, really hard to break down, and also bioaccumulate throughout the food chain. And so once you get to higher levels of the food chain, you have these accumulated levels of PFAS in blood and and different things like that.
0: So bioaccumulation, what exactly is that?
1: Bioaccumulation means that we are exposed to a chemical essentially faster than our bodies can process it and remove it from our bodies. And so you might be exposed to a certain chemical every day, but your body is able to process it very quickly. For example, you might drink caffeine every day, but your body is able to metabolize that caffeine and completely remove it from your body quite quickly. So you don't bioaccumulate caffeine. In contrast, chemicals that are highly bioaccumulative it means that they stick around in your body long enough that the levels can continually increase as you continue to be exposed. So with PFAS, because they are so persistent, meaning that they don't break down quickly in the body or in environmental media, they're so persistent, you end up with increasing levels of those compounds in the body over time.
0: Interesting, so where, where do they come from? I'm guessing it's not a naturally occurring thing if it doesn't you know, naturally kind of cycle through the environment.
2: So PFAS are a man-made substance. They have some pretty cool properties, which are the same ones that make them dangerous, but it also makes them really useful in products. I think most people probably know about Teflon pans. Those are one example that have PFAS, but it's really used in everything due to the nonstickness. So most dental floss even have PFAS. So it's used on the consumer product level, but also on like a larger industrial scale as part of different processes.
0: And that's to make things that don't break down easily. It's to make things more durable, right?
1: To make them more durable. Also, uh, they are very effective surfactants. They spread molecules out very thinly. So, for example, one of the major uses of PFAS that has led to a lot of water contamination is their use as firefighting foams. And that's because they are very effective at spreading out the material into a thin layer that then can help extinguish a fire. Unfortunately, because they have been so widely used in certain types of firefighting foam, that has Contributed to the contamination of many thousands of sites across North America.
0: Interesting. So, um, we were talking at the beginning, you know, the thing that's recently come out, there's been a new study. So, what have we found out here that is new?
1: This study um, by Ian Cousins and colleagues doesn't necessarily introduce a lot of new data. There, there is no new measurement data. What they do is they bring together existing studies of PFAS in drinking water and they compare those with these drinking water advisory levels. And it's really useful to put those two things in conversation because the drinking water advisory levels are essentially the level that a government says, we think you can drink water with this much PFAS in it and not get sick, not have an increased risk of a health outcome. But if, it, if the level is above that, then you might have an increased risk of developing certain negative health outcomes. And so what Cousins et al. do is look at the levels in those drinking water advisories. They note that those levels have gone down substantially over time. Levels have really declined based on advances in science because we have better epidemiological data and better toxicological data on what level of exposure is likely linked to what risk of health outcome.
0: So over time, you know, we've been finding out these are more and more toxic than we previously thought.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that strikes me about the PFAS story as something that honestly feels quite sad is that chemical manufacturers have known as early as the 1960s, that these chemicals were toxic to laboratory animals and then toxic to people who were working in their factories. This is not a discovery that came out of the blue companies have known for decades that pfas chemicals were incredibly toxic and yet they continued to use them continued to mass produce them continued to sell them as these incredibly useful chemicals
0: i want to touch on this we've been talking about polluted rainwater and it seems really focused on you know chemistry and environmental science fields So it might surprise some of our listeners, I know it surprised me a little bit, that you're both sociologists by training. So how did you each get into the world of, you know, going from sociology to studying water pollution? And how does your sociology expertise come into play there?
2: So I'm an undergrad student at Northeastern University in Boston. This is going to be my senior year. And two of the cool things about Northeastern is that we have a lot of combined majors. So I'm actually a combined environmental studies and sociology major, which means I've been able to take equal classes in both the sociology department and the environmental department, getting both those technical skills and thinking more on the sociology lens of who's affected by environmental issues, how do we communicate science to a general audience, and Northeastern also has a co-op program where we do six-month periods of time where we actually work full-time jobs to get that experience. So my first co-op, I got really lucky, was at the PFAS Project Lab, and I was able to get this really interdisciplinary experience, thinking a lot about who's affected by PFAS, and I think the sociology lunge was super helpful there. A lot of the work we do is directly engaging with community members, and it's something that I've specifically worked on that I've actually seen people find really helpful is working on fact sheets around PFAS. The science around PFAS can be really confusing. There's a lot of things that are changing, a lot of developments. And so something that we've worked really hard on is creating fact sheets around different PFAS issues. For example, one that I've worked a lot on is a PFAS blood testing fact sheet. It's actually really confusing to get your blood tested for PFAS, so we created a sheet that the average person can look at and understand where they should get their blood tested, how much it's going to cost, and when they do get those results, what does that mean? And so I think it's kind of a constant relationship between thinking about the science behind things and then also who's most affected by it and how we can best communicate that information
1: to a general audience. So I came to study PFAS because I used to study the social and scientific controversies around flame retardant chemicals, which also are widely used and also have some pretty significant health effects if you're highly exposed to flame retardants. And when I finished up that project for my dissertation, I was thinking about the next project to work on. I was collaborating with Dr. Phil Brown, who is the co-director of the PFAS project lab. And we had heard from some of our colleagues that, oh, you know, you really should be paying attention to PFAS. This is sort of the next big environmental health issue. So we've long been interested in questions about how does society, quote unquote, discover that a chemical is dangerous. when? as is the case with PFAS, but also was the case for lead, for mercury. Since we started working on it in 2014, the PFAS case has really taken off to include far more sites of contamination than we ever could have imagined. We also have seen a huge rise in not just scientific awareness, not just regulatory action on PFAS, but also community awareness and the work of impacted residents really pushing for public health protection around this class of chemicals the sociological perspective i think is incredibly valuable to look at the hard science questions around things like chemical toxicity and contamination because sociology provides a really good lens for understanding the social political and cultural sides of what we might think of as a scientific uh, issue. You really can't understand PFAS without understanding the history of regulation. And you can't understand the science around PFAS without understanding, say, why and how analytic laboratory techniques develop and change. So the social science lens is a really nice counterpart.
0: You mentioned community awareness has been on the rise. And, you know, I was reading the World Health Organization. They estimate uh, at least 122 million people in the world are drinking rainwater. And, you know, your estimate that you gave earlier was obviously higher than that. One would think that the study of rainwater would be a hot budget item in the scientific community. So what's up with the lack of social awareness um, about this, you know, fairly serious sounding issue and these serious sounding health risks? Is it the fault of the media for not highlighting scientific discoveries? Or are there just no scientific discoveries being made here?
1: I think there are a lot of factors at play. So I do think that there, at least in the U.S., there's generally an assumption that somebody is making sure the chemicals are safe. If I talk to people in my family or I talk to neighbors, there is an assumption that if you can buy a product in the store or a chemical is used to produce something that either it's safe or exposures there are are under control. We know that that is not the case. The chemical regulatory system waits for evidence of harm before taking action. There are a lot of challenges that would face the US EPA if they wanted to restrict the production of an existing chemical or uh, prevent the introduction of a new chemical. And that matters for you know folks not just in the US but also for Canada because the major PFAS manufacturers are US companies and are doing production here in the US, both of the raw chemicals and also of then the products that are then shipped globally. So I do think that there is a general lack of understanding in the public sphere about the limitations of product safety and management of the supply chain. I think the media could do a better job. There's this other story that has been making quite the splash in the PFAS world about this sparkling new um, degradation process that can unzip certain types of PFAS and render them uh, relatively harmless. And... It is true that that study is really exciting, that we need solutions for concentrated PFAS waste. And yet the idea that that suddenly becomes a silver bullet for the PFAS problem is a complete misinterpretation of the scope of this research. And so I think that's an example of where you see the media misrepresenting either uncertainty that's reflected in the scientific literature or the potential scalability of a technological invention to solve a problem. Of course, we've also seen the media being a a wonderful player in uh, pushing for PFAS for mitigation. And you see cases, for example, the Cape Fear River Basin in North Carolina, the media's attention to Contamination there has been really instrumental in actually achieving greater environmental justice for that community. So it it does go both ways.
0: So this isn't, I think, just a story that you were mentioning that you know is only making waves in the PFAS community. This was also something that you know we saw all over the news a month after the initial story that we can't drink the rain anymore. We saw this this big news that oh you know we can solve this. We have the answer. Could you maybe tell us a, what exactly is that development? What are people hailing as this you know a degradation silver bullet for PFAS?
1: Yeah, so this is a paper that was published in Science by a team of folks from Northwestern University and they are looking at a potential new degradation process for a particular subclass of PFAS. And they talk about it as kind of unzipping that carbon-fluorine bond, which is, as I said before, an incredibly tight bond. So if you're able to, it's very exciting. And so that's the piece that has gotten so, so much attention. So the concern about it is the chemistry is really exciting, but it's not a solution to the PFAS contamination crisis that we have right now. It appears that it might be a possible solution for highly concentrated PFAS waste of a certain subclass of the PFAS family, and that's very useful in that sort of small application. There are also concerns about some of the byproducts of this process are probably less toxic than PFAS, but still have some toxicity concerns of their own. This really isn't a silver bullet. It's exciting. It's great to be identifying novel and previously unknown approaches to PFAS destruction, but there's still a long ways to go. And that's why it's really important to think not just about how can we be cleaning up PFAS contamination, but how can we be turning off the tap of new exposures? The most effective way to reduce our exposure in the future is to stop using and emitting PFAS today. So the idea that companies are still creating new PFAS and getting approval to produce and use those new PFAS is concerning. The idea that companies can still sell PFAS down the supply chain and then that leads to high levels of emissions for communities. These are the issues that uh, I would love to see more attention paid to rather than just thinking about what is the next technological process that we might rely on to deal with a small part of the contamination.
2: Right. And we also want to make sure that PFAS don't become replaced by another class of chemicals with very similar properties, but really thinking through the long term impacts and disposal of these different solutions.
0: I want to get a little bit more into that just as we wrap up here, because this was obviously a really scary concept. You two said, you know, you've been looking at this since 2014. It's been eight years. Uh, This was really hard for a lot of people to grapple with, I think, you know, waking up and seeing the headline, oh, we can't drink the rainwater like a lot of people probably weren't thinking they were doing that anyway. But it's a it's a scary thing to hear. It's interesting that right away, you know, as soon as these things become big issues. And in my mind, it's similar to what happened with COVID. Right. The pandemic happened and then every single piece of COVID research was just publicized to the moon. So really what I want to ask here is what can people do to help kind of counter this bias against research that might not immediately get a ton of attention and on that thread make a lot of money for these media outlets and these journals publishing it?
2: Not to plug our website too much, but we also we do run um, the PFASproject.com, a website where we look at all PFAS news, some that's highly trafficked, other that's not, and compile them. And I also think that it ha- is becoming more common. So a cool thing about PFAS, at least i found this, is as soon as you hear about it, you're going to see it everywhere. So even having people read this first article, I think it's going to actually make it a lot more likely that they're going to continue reading about it because they're going to know what it is and start thinking about it. So I think that is one good aspect about these really highly trafficked studies. They can lead to people reading some of the less popular studies as well.
1: I think the the biggest change that people can push for is pushing for better environmental health regulation at their local, state or provincial and federal levels. That what will be effective at reducing PFAS exposure is turning off the tap of new emissions. And that means stopping the production of PFAS and stopping these chemicals use in virtually all product categories, and then really taking the identification of contamination and the remediation of that contamination seriously. Companies are not yet being held responsible for the contamination that they have produced. And so that's another area that we could be seeing really meaningful changes, not just changing the regulations, but also working to hold the responsible polluters financially responsible.
0: Thanks, Alyssa, and thanks, Kira, for joining us today. And thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about PFAS or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, you can visit us on Instagram or TikTok at Sci4Everyone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by science for everyone It's produced by Miriam Benmoussa, Sam Marchetti, and Connor Nelson, and edited by Jay Jarentonis.